0: Welcome to Fierce City, where we will delve into the people, places and events from the history of the greatest capital city in the world, and our home, London. I'm Satu.
1: And I'm PJ, and we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser-known history of London. We're back!
0: It's season two! We are so happy to be back recording, talking to you from your phone. We have a lovely new theme song written especially for us by composer Josh M. Mahmoud.
1: Big Thanks, shout Josh. out to Josh.
0: So in our break, we've been talking a lot about what topics we're going to cover this season. We've been doing tons of research. Got loads of ideas,
1: don't we? We really of...
0: do. We're so thrilled to be back doing a second season.
1: It didn't help that uh, Satu lost her notebook with all of our ideas in it. I'm
0: really sorry about that. But it was a great tragedy.
1: <laughs> but we've got them in our head.
0: We really don't. We've forgotten them all.
1: So what are we doing for episode one, Satu?
0: Today we are going to be talking about the suffragettes and the dread events of Black Friday. In November 1910, the suffragettes were at the peak of their fight to win votes for women, seems like a simple goal, and the events of Black Friday were just one battle. They were trying to get into the Houses of Parliament to meet the Prime Minister and deliver a petition to get the vote. Black Friday started as a peaceful protest, but it turned violent when the powers that be, and the police stood in the way of the women who marched upon Parliament. While the women's rights movement was by no means limited to London, the capital was key because London contains the symbolic heart of English, politics, Westminster, and all the men who made decisions within its walls.
1: So the story of Black Friday... really takes place in front of the backdrop of the Palace of Westminster, which is just a fancy title for what we know is today's Parliament, which has like Big Ben and the Houses of Commons and the Houses of Lords. And we've done two episodes on Downing Street and the Prime Ministers and Chancellors who've lived there about how power works when you're on the inside. Today, we're going to talk about the ways in which people who are on the outside try to fight their case and the sacrifices they made for it.
0: So come along with us as we journey back to November 1910 and the suffragettes' Black Friday.
1: So zooming out and thinking about democracy and rights, in my opinion, there are like two main ways that citizens in a democracy can wield direct power. The first is sitting on a jury and the second is voting. And as Sati will tell you, jury service is long and dull
0: Yeah, if you could have the vote for women and equality without having to do jury service, I might take it, to be honest. I've been called three times in my young life to do jury service. It's so boring. Obviously, it's nice to do your civic duty.
1: I don't think anyone's really kind of fought in a really big civil rights movement way for the jury service for women. (laughs) Regardless, in uh, the early 1900s, you wouldn't have had a choice because women weren't allowed onto juries until the 1920s, following an act um, in 1919, which also made it legal for women to be lawyers. The big ticket issue as ever though for women's rights is the right to vote and the definition of suffrage is literally the right to vote in political elections which I didn't actually know that until researching this episode. Oh
0: really yeah.
1: I kind of thought enfranchisement was the keyword but
0: yeah. well we don't really use suffrage in any other context other than suffragettes now do we
1: yeah which i think actually brings me to my point that the term suffragette was initially used by the tabloids to kind of mock women who sought the vote and like many oppressed minorities then and since the persecuted reclaimed that nasty word and many women embraced the title and kind of wore a suffragette like a badge of honor
0: it's amazing how prevalent that tactic is and it's really effective.
1: So as far back as 1886, a petition was presented to Parliament with 1,500 signatures calling for voting rights for women. And like nowadays, 1,500 doesn't sound like that great a petition. But back then, it would have been like a real huge number of people representing a real public sentiment. And the government responded to this petition with nothing. You shock me. Even in the context of the Great Reform Acts...
0: Were well, they great? Tell me how great they know. were. Well,
1: they were great insofar as they gave <laughs> the right to vote to 60% of the male population, but women were left out in the cold. Yeah, no I don't votes. care
0: for these Reform Acts.
1: I suppose the first chink in the armour of the patriarchy was in around 1907, when women were given the right to stand in local county and borough councils.
0: Woo!
1: But they couldn't even vote for themselves.
0: Boo! So for much of the Victorian era, the woman question had been debated by male politicians. What's
1: the woman answer?
0: (laughs) They never found one. Or in other words, this is what was to be done about women's place in life and society, because they just kept asking. By the first years of the 20th century, women had about had it with this approach of men talking about them and were taking matters into their own hands. There were lots of different groups of activists working towards equal rights for women, not just the suffragettes. They were the most radical of all the groups. And then there were also like suffragists who were the more mild and moderate
1: ones. You don't think of suffragists nowadays, really, do you? You just think of suffragettes.
0: They founded an organisation called the Women's Social and Political Union, which is a very dry name for a very famous, influential organisation you've probably never heard of, which I like to think of as WSPU. It was Wusbu.
1: founded. WSPU. Not
0: WSPU. That's oh, the real name. It was founded by the Pankhurst family, who are the Kennedys of women's rights
1: So oh, yeah if you know anything about women's rights like the pankhurst are right up there
0: you just need to know Emmeline pankhurst was the absolute top dog um she was the matriarch of this family of protesters that included her daughters christabel and sylvia they all started the group together in manchester which makes sense because it was closely affiliated to a branch of the labor party up there and i'm not going to go any further into that because this is not a podcast about the history of the north of england but i would listen to that So we must return now to the very different vibes of London in 1910. The WSPU was well established by now under its leader Emmeline, but there was also a lot more hostility and violence kind of coming back at her. I don't think she suffered any actual physical abuse, but another suffragette called Annie Kenny had been punched by a whole crowd of men after making a speech. It's worth making the point that these were people who were also at a left-wing political meeting. The women didn't really have that many friends in the movement. So this kind of opposition just made Mrs Pankhurst even more determined. She said, We threw away all our conventional notions of what was ladylike and good form, and we applied to our methods the one test question, will it
1: help? The Pankhursts were in London now, and they were no strangers to protesting in Parliament. Parliament, of course, as I said earlier, the heart of government, and it's the natural battleground for civil rights. Also, when you think of the Palace of Westminster, it's so iconic as a symbol of London, and those buildings look really, really old. But actually, they, in relative terms, are quite new, because whilst democratic government had existed in Westminster, since London itself was like an infant... There was a huge fire in 1834, which destroyed many of those ancient buildings that made up Parliament. Very little was saved from the fire. And some people at the time were like, oh, let's have a neoclassical building like that White House across the pond.
0: (laughs) I've heard so much about it. I've seen so many engravings of it. (laughs)
1: and king was like try to get rid of buckingham palace because he didn't <laughs> like it and like, off- that
0: doesn't surprise me it's horrible <laughs> oh i don't know i really
1: and he and he, he, offered it up for the new of <laughs> government but they were like nah they decided obviously that westminster was the only place to be and they built this large gothic building that we see today with like the towers and big ben
0: basically it looks considerably older than it actually is it looks medieval oh, totally. and it's not
1: inside it's all quite symmetrical with like the house of commons on one side and the house of lords on the other and everyone else has their own specific entrances like there's a monarch entrance and members of the public to the parlance of parliament are called strangers so there's like a stranger's entrance
0: and the strangers bar absolutely they have so many bars i think there's probably a bar for every different ident- possible identity group
1: <laughs> and a lot of them are like hidden away aren't they So thinking about just the geography of Parliament, just so that you can kind of have an idea of it when we're talking about Black Friday, you've got the river on one side, and then on the other side is like a main road with all the entrances to Parliament, and then you have just by there Parliament Square. But it's
0: right by Big Ben to really place this. So if you're standing in the road facing the House of Parliament, Big Ben's to the left and everything else sort of flows down towards the right from there, and Parliament Square is hemmed in by Big Ben.
1: Obviously, nowadays, it's all kind of security, all fenced off. But back in the early 1900s, when our story is set, it was obviously a lot more relaxed. And it's not like you could just wander in. But you could gain entry without much scrutiny.
0: As long as you went through the stranger's entrance. Yeah,
1: and it kind of explains how some awesome suffragettes protested in Parliament. For example, Marion Wallace Dunlop in 1909 managed to get into St Stephen's Hall, which is the kind of stranger's entrance. And St Stephen's Hall was actually where the House of Commons was located before the fire.
0: Oh, so that had survived.
1: Yeah. So she got in with a large indelible stamp and she graffitied the wall of the chamber, um, printing the message... Uh, Which wasn't that snappy. Women's deputation, June 29, Bill of Rights. It is the right of the subjects to petition the king, and all commitments and prosecutions for such petitionings are illegal.
0: How did she get that on a stamp?
1: Well, this stamp was huge. Like, it was the size of, like, when you go to the fairground, one of those big hammers that you use to, like, show your strength. (laughs) Test your
0: strength, okay.
1: So it's gigantic.
0: No one said anything. Yes, madam, as you were. (laughs)
1: But my favourite story, really, of a peaceful protest in Parliament was in 1908 when a group of suffragettes were admitted to the Ladies' Gallery at the Houses of Commons. And the Ladies' Gallery is a tiny room right up in the gods, which was like covered by bars and grills, meaning that you could barely see what was going on, so that the sensibilities of the gentleman couldn't be offended by looking at a lady. And one day, a bunch of suffragettes chained themselves to the grill, and then they, through one of the gaps, unfurled this gigantic banner that basically set out an entire manifesto for rights for women.
0: Knowing them is 1,400 words long.
1: <laughs> the official record of Parliament noted the following... The remainder of the speech by Mr Remnant was inaudible in the press gallery on account of a disturbance in the ladies gallery where two ladies had chained themselves to the grill and endeavored to address the house in favour of women's suffrage.
0: Did you just want to read that cuz you like the name Mr Remnant? <laughs>
1: I like how he was the last remaining person to speak. (laughs)
0: Do you want to hear my favourite story? On the night of the census, Emily Wilding Davison, a really famous suffragette, the one who later ran under the king's horse, snuck into the Houses of Parliament and hid in a cupboard so that she could say that her address on the night of the census was the Houses of Parliament, which is a really good peaceful protest act. And then later, good guy Tony Benn, an MP, just went and put his own plaque up.
1: I love that. Didn't ask, just was like, this broom cupboard is going to be a place to note the... rights of women.
0: Yeah, I like that from him. And I also just really like it when people do things off the books. Returning to 1910, an effort was being made to get votes for women via a bill called the Conciliation Bill, inappropriately named because virtually everyone disliked this bill for some reason or other. The suffragettes themselves didn't like it, even though it was going to get some votes for some women, because it was only going to give the vote to property owners over 30. That was not even a majority of women, let alone all of them. The Liberals disliked that property owners were going to get the vote and they were going to vote Conservative. That's just how it goes. And the Conservatives just didn't want any women to have the vote. So some tiny fraction of like snobby classist suffragettes were probably fine with it, but no one else liked it.
1: Despite it looking like it was doomed to fail, it did actually pass the first few readings in the House of Commons. And then the Prime Minister of the time, Herbert Henry Asquith, just suddenly put an end to the whole thing and stopped the bill in its tracks. Now, whilst you're right, no one particularly liked it, it was still would have been a massive step for women's suffrage. And it looked like it was going to happen, and it was just pulled away from them suddenly. So there was obviously a real feeling of rejection on behalf of the women, and and rightfully so, they were really angry about it.
0: Oh, sure, it would be incredibly disappointing... And for all that in this year that we've been celebrating the hundred years of some women eventually getting votes in exactly this format, like you sometimes just have to make a practical step towards like full win.
1: So in response, the suffragettes assembled their women's parliament in a place called Caxton Hall on Friday the 18th of November 1910 in order to discuss their response.
0: Caxton Hall, quite an interesting place, actually. It's a nice red brick building, about 10 minutes walk from the Houses of Parliament. A lot of groups gathered there because it's so convenient to just go marching on Parliament. And this is where the WSPU got together every year since 1907 to have a rally and then march to Westminster. Some of the groups who like to meet at Caxton Hall include the pretty reasonable sounding Homosexual Law Reform Society, hollers, Hollerith. and also the National Front
1: not, not so cool. Not
0: cool. So, it's Friday the 18th of November, 1910. A lot of suffragettes, hundreds, had gathered there that day to hear Emmeline Pankhurst speak. She said to them, You are acting legally and persistently endeavouring to see Mr Asquith. All your other kind of effort having failed, you will press forward in quietness and peaceableness, offending none and blaming none, ready to sacrifice yourselves even unto death, if need be, in the cause of freedom.
1: She really set her stall out there in terms of orders to her people. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in the men's parliament, Prime Minister Asquith was about to dissolve parliament and sweep this conciliation bill under the carpet. The suffragettes did have a few allies in parliament, and the first leader of the Labour Party, Keir Hardy, requested more time to consider the bill, but was completely ignored. A bit of background on Keir Hardy. For
0: his fans.
1: I think you particularly like him, don't you, Satya? I
0: love him.
1: He was an ardent campaigner for votes for women, and he even threatened to leave the party he created, uh, the Labour Party, when they didn't get behind him on the issue.
0: That is exactly the kind of attitude that I like.
1: In a speech he gave in 1905, he cut right to the point and said... A woman may be a criminal, a queen, a tax and rate payer, an owner of property, but she may not be a citizen of Great Britain and Ireland until a right to become such has been created by an act of Parliament. To those who are opposed on principle to women having the vote at all, I have little to say. These I find it easier to pity than to reason with.
0: Sing it, Keir.
1: So with their orders, the group of 300 women would descend on Parliament from Caxon Hall and would demand to be taken seriously. And it's important to note that this 300 wasn't a mob. The women set off in groups of 12, which was in accordance with the laws at the time for demonstrations.
0: They knew there was going to be trouble when they got there, and they tried to get the younger girls and older women to stay behind, but without much luck. Everyone wanted to be involved. Mrs Pankhurst, keen to be seen as peaceable, of course, made everyone leave their umbrellas behind so they wouldn't be tempted to use them as weapons.
1: And these women were also, you know, young women, old women, a lot of them were members of the kind of genteel upper classes. So it's not like it was a bunch of kind of armed militant young women kind of ready to take on anything that came their way. I
0: agree. I don't know if them being upper class makes a difference to how sort of physical or aggressive they would be. But for sure, this is not Necessarily what you think of as like a a trained fighting fit crew. Like there were some very elderly women there.
1: The first 12 reached the strangers' entrance by St Stephen's Hall around one o'clock in the afternoon, including Emmeline Pankhurst, and they stood on the steps waiting for the rest of their cohort to arrive.
0: So, speaking of genteel women, some of the most high status women were in that first delegation with Emmeline Pankhurst, and they were also some of the kind of leadership lights of WSPU. As well as Mrs. Pankhurst, there's Dr. Louisa Garrett Anderson and her mother, Elizabeth. Some social notables like Mrs. Sol Solomon and Mrs. Hertha Ayrton. I'm mentioning these people because I think we're going to quote some of their experiences later. And there's also a figure of increasing fame these days, Sophia de Singh, Princess Sophia de Singh. She had a fascinating life. She was the daughter of a deposed Maharaja and also the goddaughter of Queen Victoria, She'd spent some time as a glittering socialite, but she became woke, basically, and we find her here in her 30s, having developed into a strong-willed political campaigner. Her presence as a well-known friend to the royal family could have proved useful to the protesters in their goal of getting to meet with the Prime Minister, but no.
1: So if the suffragettes had their orders from Emmeline Pankhurst, on the other side of the equation, the person giving the orders on behalf of the government was none other than Winston Churchill...
0: It is always him.
1: It always is him. And he was at the time the Secretary of State for the Home Office, and he kind of had no sympathy with the plight of women for votes. The idea of Churchill and the idea of victory kind of go hand in hand in our modern view of him. And with an election looming, there were other divisive issues on the government's agenda at the time. So victory for Churchill meant squashing the women's campaign. And in any event, Churchill didn't really think that women needed the right to vote because, as he said... They were well represented by their fathers, brothers and husbands.
0: What a guy. So when Churchill wasn't twiddling his evil moustache and cackling to himself, he set about a plan to quell any rebellion by deploying huge numbers of police to stand outside Parliament and instructing them to keep the women well away from the door. So the suffragette tactics at this time were basically to get themselves arrested. It just helped them to raise the profile and, you know, the sight of women in in prison or really, you know, posh women in prison. But any of these people that the suffragettes could point to in their literature as having been arrested for their plight really helped to spread the word about their campaign. But on this day, the police were apparently told not to go about arresting everybody or creating any martyrs, but to take all steps to keep the protesters separate and demotivated. Suck the oxygen from the situation, basically. That is not what happened. Police had been brought in from all over London and by far outnumbered the women protesting.
1: So it's about one o'clock and the leadership are on the stairs and in groups of 12, Parliament Square, just outside Parliament, is filling up with protesters and also filling up with police. The women have got banners saying things like, Asquith has vetoed the bill, or where there's a bill, there's a way. (laughs) Good puns. And uh, my favourite, women's will beats Asquith's won't. Joining the police and joining the protesters were an increasing number of spectators. I mean, looking at the photographs of Black Friday, the few of them that there are, you kind of see as many bystanders as you do kind of women and police. There was definitely an audience There are differing accounts of the real sentiment of the looky-loos who bustled in from the streets around Parliament, who were going to see what the fuss was about. Some say that the crowd of men and boys were ridiculing the women, and they probably regarded the concept of votes for women laughable. In the photos, you see basically lots of people just like sniggering and laughing. It doesn't look very nice. To me, the sentiment there isn't one of support.
0: It seems also that they were part of the reason that the protest changed from being a bit of pushing back and forth, you know, the women trying to get through and the police just providing their bodies as a physical barrier to real violence breaking out. The writer George Dangerfield is there. It's a great name, by the way. He described how the laughter of the crowd, and it was large, took on a coarser note. The police grew flushed and angry. They, the women, were no longer demonstrators, they were monsters. Their presence was unendurable. I think that a spark of anger happened and the yeah. police like lost control.
1: With everybody piling in and the crowd being huge and the women pushing forward and the crowd laughing and jeering, it agitated the police and it did set off this spark that you're talking about.
0: Just talking about it, I can feel my own emotions rising up in me. I'm imagining it's like you're in a mosh pit, but someone's laughing in your face about what a stupid idiot you are. And I think both the protesters and the police felt like the crowd was laughing at them.
1: And the only way, therefore, to legitimise what you were doing is to push harder. The police began to snatch these banners from the women's hands and tore them to pieces. They were jeering at them. Foul language was used by the police to dissuade the protesters and try to break their formation.
0: The foul language turned into violent behaviour. The women were being flung by the police into the public crowd, hit, dragged away to be beaten, even worse. This went on for hours. There were doctors back at Caxton Hall who were treating a flood of women for black eyes, bleeding noses, and dislocations. But I think, given how many people we know were there, I think the women went to Caxton Hall, got patched up and went back into the fray. They were being grabbed by the throat, thrown into the piles of cars and horses, their thumbs were wrenched back, their skirts were pulled up over their heads to reveal their bare legs, which is just an attempt to humiliate them. And there were just some icky-sounding assaults. There's a lot of reported breast-ringing and being thrown around by the breasts, which sort of sounds funny, but it just sounds really horrible. One witness, uh, who's referred to just as Miss H, says a policeman said to her, you've been wanting this for a long time, haven't you? It seems like a toxic mix of generalized hatred for women who have stepped out of line and the specific bitter spinster line that was taken by anti-suffragette propaganda from publications called things like the anti-suffrage review uh, i wonder what their hot take on the matter was came together to just spark into horrible violence
1: so the police were clearly assaulting and beating a lot of women in the crowd and there's a lot of confusion as well about whether and to what extent there were plain plainclothes policemen as well who were Also, doling out the abuse. The police said that there were no plainclothes policemen there that day, and due to the sheer number of police that were brought in from all the different parts of London, I can imagine how there were some probably plainclothes policemen, but not by any means the majority that some accounts say were involved and doling out the violence.
0: Sure, Hertha Ayrton, for example, who we mentioned earlier. Describes a gauntlet of organised gangs of policemen in plain clothes, dressed like roughs who nearly squeezed the breath out of our bodies, the policemen in official clothes helping them. So she almost thinks that the, like, the crowd were all plain clothes police officers, which they weren't. Yeah. Were and I they.
1: suppose they wouldn't want to blame the crowd publicly.
0: Right. No, I think that's a strategy. So I think the suffragettes specifically wanted everyone to think the public was on their side and it was just like this minority, basically the government, trying to bring them down.
1: I think in reality what happened probably was that the crowd whose sympathies were not with the women anyway kind of saw it as a free pass to do whatever they liked. The police were doing it. They could do it too.
0: Mm. More detail on the violence. A disabled woman called May Billinghurst describes her treatment. In this quote, the machine she talks about is her wheelchair. At first, the police threw me out of the machine onto the ground in a very brutal manner. Secondly, when on the machine again... They tried to push me along, with my arms twisted behind me in a very painful position. Thirdly, they took me down a side road and left me in the middle of a hooligan crowd, first taking all the valves out of the wheels and pocketing them so I could not move the machine. This is so outrageous. I mean, it's bad enough, but it's just, like so disempowering that they just wheeled this poor woman in her wheelchair into the middle of this crowd who were like really roughing people up and stole bits of her wheelchair and ran off
1: so police brutality followed by mob mentality it's horrible and i think that the as you said earlier the women wanted to get arrested because that was their the point to prove they could then go on a hunger strike or it was a very visible sign of protest And they were facing this violence and they were trying to get arrested, but they weren't being arrested as much as they normally would. Right. So you can imagine the frustration and the confusion that was felt by these women as well. They normally smashed a window or did something and were immediately arrested and taken out of the uh, hostile situation. But that wasn't really an option here.
0: And I think that really shocked them because, as you say, they were like well up for being arrested, but they weren't up for being beaten up or sexually assaulted, like... The worst quote, I think, is from Henrietta Williams, who seems to have been a really frail person, who was just really knocked and traumatised by this whole day. She says, "'The police have such strong, large hands that when they take hold of one by the throat, as I saw one man do, but not to me, or grasp one's sides or ribs, which was done to me, they cannot possibly know how tightly they are holding or how terribly at times they are hurting.' One policeman, after knocking me about for a considerable time, finally took hold of me with his great strong hand like iron just over my heart. He hurt me so much that at first I had not the voice power to tell him what he was doing, but I knew that unless I made a strong effort to do so, he would kill me. So collecting all the power of my being, I commanded him to take his hand off my heart. I think he must have read from my face that he had gone too far, for a look of fear immediately came on his face. Yet that policeman would not arrest me. And he was the third or fourth who had knocked me about. And actually a bystander, a man, ran in and said, you're going to kill this woman. He he saved her. He put himself between the policeman and her. So it took someone else coming in.
1: And and it is important to note the whole crowd weren't just baying for blood. There were obviously people who, as you say, tried to help.
0: Oh, absolutely. There were people who supported them there. This was a mixed crowd of opinions. I don't want it to sound like no one wanted this to happen. There was definitely support for them. You have to have support or you just get so demoralised. So this level of violence went on, dragged on for five hours. These women were really going through an ordeal. And every hour, some would be arrested, but just not as many as you would expect. So if there's 300 people there, it's sort of 20 in the first hour. And as you can tell, I think they thought, some of them might die that day. This was a very intense experience.
1: And whilst these horrors were unfolding outside, members of Parliament inside were safe debating other issues. And word did reach various MPs who did go outside to see Emmeline Pankhurst on the steps. In her account of Black Friday, she reports some of these MPs coming out to sympathise with her plight. One such person was Lord Castlereagh, who was actually Churchill's cousin, proposed a motion to get the bill passed, he was shut down and Parliament quickly finished their session and Asquith escaped away without having to confront any of the women. At one point, Pankhurst and a few of the ladies were invited in and Asquith just refused to see them. By 6pm, the protest in Parliament Square was more or less over. Parliament had disbanded and Asquith had fleed. Many of the women, injured and molested, retreated to Caxon Hall or to home to recover while some of the more militant members of the cohort set out by smashing windows of the cabinet members' homes. Despite the intention of the police not to arrest women, as things got so bad, as many as 116 people were arrested, with over 200 people being taken to the police station over the course of the day.
0: Yeah, we do want to say there was like three or four men, I think, got Absolutely, arrested. Yeah. They, had, they were allies in that mix. The next day, most of the nearly 120 people who'd been arrested Had the charges against them dropped for some reason, Missus Pankhurst had herself a canny opponent in Churchill. He wasn't going to let them get into this game. Churchill obviously went on to deny giving any orders for the police to beat up women. Because it just—I mean, even then, obviously that wasn't going to wash. He said, "There's no truth in the statement that the police had instructions which led them to terrorise and maltreat the women." The statement that there was a large number of plainclothes officers who were, it is suggested, guilty of indecencies is equally false. But the crowd, and he's about to do some kind of classist blaming here, which was assembled in response to invitations scattered broadcast by the WSPU, contained a large number of undesirable and reckless persons quite capable of indulging in gross misconduct. For their presence in Parliament Square, the women themselves are responsible. Of the 200 women arrested, not a single one complained of being hurt or made any charge against the police of undue violence or misconduct. That is just simply not true. We have read quotes from women.
1: How unrealistic. It's not like the police had like a card you could fill in. Have you experienced mistreatment at the hands of the police today?
0: (laughs) No, I doubt it. Churchill did agree that the police were under instruction to avoid arrests. I note that he was asked several times about this. You know, many MPs had witnessed themselves, as you said, the violence and were really shocked by it. And they asked in Parliament, did you do this? And he went for a kind of classic rhetorical thing of there was no violence that day. I don't know what you're talking about. And then on a different occasion, the terrible violence that happened had nothing to do with me.
1: So, I mean... He, he fudged it a little bit, didn't he?
0: Yeah, and really known for his talent with words as well. So seems to have fallen apart a bit on this occasion. For the suffragettes, drawing attention to their campaign was absolutely crucial. Like, they wanted to promote this. But the newspapers were covering up or downplaying the violence and generally blaming the protesters themselves for causing most of the trouble. The Times made a point of saying that several of the policemen had their helmets knocked off. Not their helmets. The Daily Mail huffed that, despite the political crisis... The suffragettes made another march in force upon the House of Commons to see Mr Asquith. How very dare they with their peaceful protest to deliver a petition? There's always something more urgent than equality.
1: The cover-up extended to Churchill's Home Office trying to quell the publication of a photograph on the front page of the Mirror, which was of Ada Wright crumpled on the floor, grasping her head in pain, surrounded by police officers. And that image, if you Google it, is quite iconic of Black Friday. The paper ran the image as their front page, and despite the editorial being anti-women, the picture spoke a thousand words. Asquith's only immediate compromise was to offer that the bill would be once again debated in Parliament. Great! (laughs) In the face of ridicule from the public, criticism from the papers, and denials from the government, the suffragettes and their allies resolved not to keep the events of Black Friday in the dark. Open letters were published, and there were demands to Churchill to set up a public inquiry, which he promptly didn't do. (laughs) People like MP Robert Cecil, who was a future Nobel Peace Prize winner, wrote to the Times about the appalling treatment of the women. And people went about collecting statements from those involved in Black Friday and publicising those as proof of the government's tyranny.
0: The suffragettes also had their own paper, which apparently everyone did. It was called Votes for Women. So also a bit of a a mono-issue publication there. And they flogged the life out of Black Friday, as you would, because they really wanted this publicity. Well, they'd been through it. Like, they earned the right, didn't they? But they designated two women, Mary Clark, who was actually Mrs. Pankhurst's sister and Henrietta Williams as the martyrs of Black Friday. And I think we're unfortunately going to say we just don't agree with this, do no. we?
1: I mean, Henrietta Williams was the lady whose quote you read out earlier, which mm. is harrowing. And she was described as having a very weak heart and constitution even before this. So even though she was 43, she appeared elderly, and she died just two months after Black Friday. But I can't think...
0: I, I mean, can't... it breaks my heart that she had this horrible experience, and then she died just a couple of months later... But I don't think that the heart problem was spontaneously brought into being by Black Friday.
1: No, and Mary Clark was a real activist and she went about smashing windows after Black Friday, as you do, and then in prison went on hunger strike. So when she came out of prison, um, she was already very weak and ill and she died on Christmas Day.
0: She was 78 years old. She was an unbelievably brave and amazing person.
1: So worthy martyrs for the suffragette cause, but potentially not as a direct result of Black Friday.
0: I think that's fair to say. Some people just couldn't really face this, so the suffragettes did actually lose some of their supporters as a result of Black Friday. Someone named only as Miss B.W. said, Keeness is my desire to help our cause. My self-respect prevents me from voluntarily subjecting myself again to similar treatment, in future my protest must be made by stone throwing. So she decided she was going to smash windows. And someone else agreed, it is better to break windows than to allow men to damage women as we were damaged last year. Some people just backed out completely, their families just banned them from coming. It was just too traumatising. However, although the aftermath was a mixed bag. Some people only felt like their determination was solidified by this experience. they had seen exactly how desperately the government wanted to prevent them getting votes, and this was already the struggle of their lives. They were definitely not going to give up. There is a happy historical conclusion to this tale. Whether it was the stone-throwing, the brave banner-waving protest, or just the turning tide of history, some women were given the vote in 1918.
1: And the rights to vote came from the same kind of bill that was actually the cause of Black Friday. It was then called the Representation of the People Act 1918. And the right for women over the age of 30 who owned property or who were married to an owner of property were given the right to vote along with all men. Even though this is a half-hearted measure, I still think it gives us real cause to celebrate the 100-year anniversary in 2018, as it was a gigantic step forward in women's suffrage.
0: I completely agree. Obviously, I don't care if men got the vote or not, but it was good that they also gave the vote to working-class men as well as property owners. It was all a step on the way. The real glorious moment finally came in 1928, though, when all women over 18 were finally given the right to use or not to use as they see fit to this very day. Some people like to say that World War I made women's rights some kind of inevitability, but I would like to note that even though during World War I women took over men's jobs, women have been working solidly for the entirety of history and there's been plenty of wars and no one just handed women equal rights after the Crimea. I I just don't like this interpretation. I really see this chain of political protest far back into the past and every link on that chain is a person sometimes they're unnamed mostly they're unnamed you know we've heard lots of names in this story but they're the the wealthy rich women we haven't heard about all of the silenced working class women who were part of this protest too because that's just the nature of history every tiny link in that chain got us to where we are today as the votes for women newspaper said The womanhood of the country stands outside the closed door of the free human commonwealth. Behind it sits secure the manhood of the race. They hammered on that door until they knocked it down.
1: Thinking about where we are now, over a hundred years from the horrible event on Black Friday, when a group of women in London faced physical abuse at the hands of the government, asking for something as basic as the right to vote, reminds me of the importance of all those activists who are standing up for their rights. The idea of women having a vote was laughable to the masses at the time and was seen as a step too far, even by the Liberal government. So what do we now think of as a step too far? And is it worth challenging our prejudices about other groups' fight for freedom? London and activism in Westminster provides the perfect platform for making real change, and I really hope that in a hundred years from now, the public and the government aren't looked in the same way as we see Churchill and the government on that day in Black Friday. Let's not keep the outsiders out in the cold. Thanks for listening to Fierce City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and our home, London. This season, we're going to be bringing you even more weird and wonderful tales of London. So if you have a particular topic you'd like to hear about, or just want to share your ideas, please do get in touch.
0: Once again, we're so thrilled about our new music by composer josh Ann Mahmood, and his music is available on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Mahmoud. And he has a website, J-O-S-H-A-N, Mahmood, M-A-H-M-U-D.com you should definitely check out his music it's really lovely Absolutely. he's really talented so we're also now on stitcher and Acast, which we didn't realize we weren't on but we are on now as well as itunes and we would love it if you could rate us or write a quick review it really helps us to algorithmically attract new listeners and it's just really nice to hear what you think it helps you can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at fierce city pod fierce city was written and produced by the two voices you have heard thank you for listening